0: Well, this morning, I am going to be continuing in a sermon series that I've entitled The Practical Gospel. I'm in the fourth week learning to put into practice what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He said this, he said, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That phrase there work out your salvation is the focus I guess of this sermon series. Not that you work for your salvation, not that by your good works that you make yourself right with God because no one by their own good works can make themselves right with God, but Jesus by his death has made a way for us to be right with God, that all who turn from their sins, put their faith in Jesus, are forgiven, have eternal life. And now he says, work out the implications of your salvation into every area of your life. That's what we're doing this sermon series. What, is it, what difference does it make? What difference does the gospel make in my love life? What difference does the gospel make in parenting and family? What difference does the gospel make in my work life? Those were the last three weeks. And then today is going to be about what difference does the gospel make in my relationship with money and possessions. What difference does the gospel make when it comes to money and possessions? And I know that all of you are coming from very different places when it comes to money. Some of you aren't sure where your next meal might come from. Some of you have more than enough money. Um, But I'm praying that wherever you are coming from, that God would speak to your hearts what it is that you need to hear this morning. So the gospel summary statement that I've been using is this, to help guide the sermon. It's this, we are sinners Who have been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. If you read that statement closely, there's a past, present, and future dimension to that. The first is the past, that we have been saved and justified by grace, that by Jesus' death on the cross, we've been justified, which means he has declared us not guilty. All our sins have been put on Jesus on the cross, and he looks at us now as his beloved son or daughter without sin. We've been justified by his grace. Nothing we did to deserve it, just a gift of God's grace. Then there's a present dimension, that we're learning to live as new creations according to God's will. That now that we belong to him, we have his Holy Spirit in us, We're, we're new creations. We're not the people we once were. We're learning what it means to live as a son or daughter of the Heavenly Father to learn as citizens, to live as citizens of God's kingdom. And then there's a future dimension in the gospel as well, that we trust in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. We know this life is not all there is, that we have eternity to look forward to with him, where there will be no more sin, no more brokenness, no more death. Amen. None of that. And so we're going to use that summary statement to frame the sermons this, during this series, the past, present, future dynamic. And so begin with the first part. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace. There's two things in particular that I want to say about that. What difference does it make that God has looked at us and declared us not guilty because of Jesus? Not because of anything we've done or haven't done, but that he sees us as perfect in his sight because we've trusted in Jesus. What difference does that make when it comes to our relationship with money and possessions? The first implication is this. You're going to recognize this This has been very similar. Every sermon, it's this. Our self-worth does not depend upon the size of our bank accounts or what we own. Our self worth does not depend upon the size of our bank accounts or what we own. Again, this has been one of the clearest messages from this series that it's so easy to find your identity in self-worth and self worth in things other than God and what He says you are, right? It's so easy to find your identity in whether or not you have someone in your life, romantically or not what they think about you. It's so easy to find your identity in how you're doing as a parent or whether or not you have children, whether or not you have a family to call your own. It's so easy to find your identity in how you're doing at work, what your boss says about you. Same way, it's very easy to find your self worth in how much money you have. On the one hand, maybe to have so much that you think more of yourself than you ought to and look down on others who don't have what you have. Because you've got a better house or a bigger car, you know, a better car or more money in your bank account, to think somehow that means that you're worth more than another human being. To people like that, Paul, in writing to Timothy, said this: command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What does he say? He says, Listen. Command them not to be arrogant. If they have a lot of money, if they've been blessed, command them not to put their hope in wealth because it's so uncertain. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Do not find your self-worth or your identity in what you own in the size of your bank account. And then conversely, of course, there's others who look at others and feel like, well, they've got more than I do. I don't have the same kind of house, the same kind of clothes, the same kind of possessions. And therefore, think of themselves as less than other people. But again, this passage says, wealth is so uncertain. You can't take it with you. That there are true wealth is, true wealth and true riches that are not found in a bank account, not found in possessions. They're found in God. That your self-worth does not depend on what you own or how much money you have. The gospel declares that you are worthy of love because God sent his son Jesus, because Jesus died for you, because he was willing to give his son for you. That is how worthy you are. And so whatever you may have or, or not have, do not find your identity in that. The second thing you need to know is this, that we do not look to money as our savior. If the gospel declares that it is Jesus who died for us, And that is what makes us worthy, that he saved us. Then we don't look to money as our savior. You know, when we talk about money, it's it's not, of course, just about money, but it's about what money represents, right? You can't talk about money without talking about your heart. What does money mean to you? What does money signify to you? Because you live in a broken world full of suffering, full of anxiety, And you're faced with the reality that one day we're all going to die. And who's going to save you from all the troubles of this world? Who is going to save you from all the trouble in this world? Who's going to save you from death? This is what money promises you. Security. If you have enough money, then you can be secure. And you can rest secure because of the size of your bank account. It promises you freedom. If you have enough money, then you could do whatever you want. It promises you power. If you have enough money, no one can stop you. That you'll have access to inner circles. You'll have power over other people. Think about all the things that money tries to promise you, to save you from the troubles of this world. If I just had enough money, then I'd be saved. So am I to tell you this morning, if, if only you would live for... Money as your God. Sacrifice everything for it. Seek it with all your heart. Then you will be saved. But Paul declares this in First Timothy 6, 6 through 11. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. What does he call money here? It's a trap, he says. The desire for money is a trap. You think it's going to save you from all the troubles of this world, but it's not going to save you from anything. It is a trap. And if you're seeking money as your savior, you're going to fall into that trap. It's not going to rescue you. Jesus said the same thing in Luke 12, 15. He said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Watch out for greed, he says. It is subtle but it is addictive. It's addictive. Greed, money, possessions are addictive. And just like every other addiction, there's a tolerance effect. And you need more, and you need more, and you need more. Those things that once were luxuries become necessities. You stop and think about it. Those things that you once thought were beyond you, now they're things you have to have. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It can fill you with the envy of those who have more than you. It can fill you with dissatisfaction for your life and what you have. It can make you arrogant looking down on those who have less than you. Watch out. Greed, money, they're terrible saviors. The truth is when you have more money, you got more things to protect, right? More money, more problems, right? You become a slave to your possessions. It can't buy happiness. Money can't buy happiness. It can't guarantee the love of those in your life. It doesn't make your problems go away. It can't save you from relational issues, from rebellious children. It's not going to save you from sickness and death. It can't save you from a meaningless life. All those things that wealth and money promise you, it fails to deliver on. It's a trap. As it says in Proverbs 18, 10 through 11, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it, an unscalable wall. Love that little word there, imagine. It's not an unscalable wall. They imagine that it is. They think that if they build up enough wealth that it'll be an unscalable wall protecting them from the troubles of this world. But the writer of Proverbs says, no, it's not. They're imagining things. It's not going to protect them at all. Only the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Run to that. Money is a terrible Savior. It's a terrible God. Jesus alone is Lord and Savior. So, again, we're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. That means that your self worth does not depend upon the size of your bank account or what you own, and that you should not look to money as your Savior. It's a trap. Look to the Lord. Second element of the gospel summary statement is this, that we are learning to live as new creations according to God's will. Again, when we repent and come to faith in Jesus, he adopts us as his children. So now we have a father, a heavenly father, who cares for us. We have his Holy Spirit inside of us, learning to live like him, with his desires in mind. And so what are the implications of this for our relationship to money and possessions? First of all this, we're learning to be content. In our Father's loving care. It's a great word, isn't it? Content. How many of you feel content this morning in what you have? Some of you may have found the secret of being content. Some of you struggle, I'm sure, with being content with what you have and not feeling like you need more. More money, more possessions, more things. But because of the gospel, we're learning to be content. First Timothy 6.6, 6, again, going back, we read this one earlier. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain, great gain. Contentment meaning I'm, I'm okay. No matter what my circumstances are, I'm okay. I'm okay with what I have. In the Greek, that word great gain is, is, is translated as mega wealth. It's, it's, more, it, it's, it's having more wealth than anything in this world, more wealth than money, than possessions. To be content with what you have, to have an inner peace and joy that doesn't depend upon your bank account, let me just share two other passages about contentment. Hebrews thirteen five through six. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Keep your lives free from the lump of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Philippians four ten through 13 I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I'm sure many of you have heard that last verse before, maybe in the context of sporting events and people having it painted on their faces or something. But in the context, what is he saying? He is saying it's the secret of being content. I know what it is to have a lot of money and possessions. I know what it is to have nothing, and I've learned to be content in either situation because I know that he's with me, and I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Contentment with godliness is great gain. To be okay with what I have, whether I have a lot or have a little, because God is with me. Because the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. And again, Paul in Romans eight, thirty one to thirty two, says this What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That passage more than any other passage helps me, I know. I'm sure it helps many of you to know that, listen, he gave his son when you were his enemy. Now that you're his child, he will give you what you need. He will provide what you need. And so rest content in his loving care. He gave his son when you were his enemy. And now that you're his son or daughter, he will give you graciously everything that you need. So we're learning to live as new creations. It means we learn to be content in our Father's loving care. And we see ourselves as stewards of God's money. You know what that word means? That, that means not an owner. And this is going to be a paradigm shift for many of you. To see yourselves not as owners of your house, owners of your car, owners of your clothing, owners of your stuff, but as stewards. That God is the owner of it and he has entrusted it to you. It's a huge paradigm shift to see yourself as a steward and not as an owner. That the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. And that he's entrusted some of that to you. To be stewards of it, to use it for his kingdom. How can you use it for his kingdom to honor him? In Matthew six twenty four, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You're a steward, not an owner. You exist to serve God. He is the owner. He is the master. And so we don't live to serve money as our God, but to serve him. In the Old Testament, part of how they did that was they had the tithes and the offerings. You'd bring the 10%, the tithes, and the offerings above and beyond the tithes tithes, to be brought in to the storehouse, to be used to support those who gave their lives to the work of, the, the, of God, to the priests, and then to, to, make, to meet the needs of those who are in need. In 1 Corinthians nine fourteen, Paul says, in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He encourages them to make sure that you support those who are sharing the gospel with you. We live on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't follow the Old Testament laws anymore, but God's encouragement is still that we would be generous stewards of what he has, that we would give to the work of God's kingdom in the church, tithing, tithing, whether it's 10%, giving above and beyond in offerings to be used not just to support this, but also so that we might have enough to reach out to this world, to support the missionaries we support, to do more in our community, Again, we don't live to serve money, but we're stewards of what God has given to us. And I want to encourage and challenge you this morning to consider how you are stewarding what God has given you, to challenge you to give to God's kingdom, to give to his church. John Wesley put it this way, not how much of my money will I give to God, but how much of God's money will I keep for myself? I'll let you chew on that while I take a sip of water. That's the difference between being an owner and a steward. Some of you are, are, are cheerful givers who love to give, but most of us have a hard time parting with our hard-earned money, because we look and we see how many bills we have and how many things around us that we need to pay for. But if we're stewards, we recognize that there is a God who loves us, who has entrusted some of his wealth to us. And if tithing is 10%, you know, if it means giving 10%, instead of seeing it as how am I going to give up 10% of my money, it's seeing it as thank you. It's like a rich man giving you a lot of money and saying you can keep 90% for yourself. I want you to just use 10% to give back. You're not an owner. You're a steward of God's money. And then thirdly, not only have we learned to be content in our Father's loving care, and we see ourselves as stewards of God's money, but also we believe it's better to give than to receive. It's better to give than receive. As Jesus said, Acts twenty thirty five. And everything I did, this is Peter, or Paul, I forget who said this, probably Paul. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give. Than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 8, 7 and 9. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Notice how he says, I'm not commanding you. Again, we're not on the Old Testament side of history. We're not following the law. We're under grace. We don't give because there's some law that you need to follow in order to measure up to God's standard. No, you've been set free by that. He says, I'm not commanding you. But if you understand the gospel, and this is why we're talking about the implications of the gospel for your money and possessions, if you understand the gospel, you know that God says, Jesus, though he was rich, became poor. Though he had everything, though he was in heaven and had everything, he gave it up to become poor so that you might become rich, so that you might have mega wealth. You might have everything that is the Lord's. And now he says, I've set, he's set an example for you. That even though you might have an abundance, to be willing to give to others so that they might have more. It's so much easier, you know, it would be so much easier if there was just a law, right? It would be so much easier to just say, you know what, God's law says this and you need to do it or else. Or else you'll be punished. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is about your heart, setting your heart free from greed, setting your heart free from fear, setting your heart free to be generous as he's been generous with you, to be loving as he has loved you, to not put your hope and your trust in money, but to put your hope and trust in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, Paul says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I just have to pause before I continue in that passage. Do you see this? Do you see what is promised here? Do you see what is being challenged of you here? I mean, he talks about being a cheerful giver, and I used to use this as an out. I don't know if any of you ever did that. Well, you know what? I'm not giving cheerfully, so I better just not give then, right? Because he loves a cheerful giver. It's not the point. The point is that if your heart is not cheerfully giving, there's something about the gospel that you are missing. There's something about God that you do not understand. There's something about him that you do not yet believe. Your heart has not yet grabbed a hold of. If you are not a cheerful giver, there's something you're missing about the gospel. You're still still struggling to trust him, that he loves you, that he'll provide for you. And more than that, that he's made this promise here to you, that as you give, he will make sure you have everything you need so that you can give more. Because again, he's the owner and you're the steward. And if you're the kind of steward who is looking, how can I give and serve and be generous? Guess what? He's probably going to be giving you more so that you can give more. Because he wants to give to those who are generous. And so if your heart struggles with being a cheerful giver, there's something that you don't yet believe about the gospel. There's something you don't yet trust and believe about God and his character. Continuing in this passage, as it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God that is a challenge to you that passage is a big challenge to step out in faith when it comes to giving to believe that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive to believe what Paul is saying here that as you give that he will make sure you have everything you need so that you can give more that's stewardship. That God is the owner. That he's entrusted it to you. He's encouraging you. Give and see what I will do to care for you so that you can give more. So that we can have a generous church that cares for each other and cares for the people of this world. This is so far from a guilt trip again, right? I mean, some of you have heard probably sermons on money or been in church, Or maybe you felt like it was a guilt trip. And Paul again and again is like, I'm not commanding you here. Do not give under compulsion. This is not what this is about. You are saved by grace, not by what you've done or haven't done, not by what you've given or haven't given. If you have tithed $0, you're still saved if you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation. It's not what saves you. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about working out the implications of the gospel That if God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, that he left the comfort of heaven, the wealth of heaven, to become poor for your sakes, that he's calling you to do the same, to be willing to take what he has given you and to give it to others just as he's given to you. To trust that he loves you and that by your generosity you show that, that you trust him. Because you trust that He will take care of what it is that you need. Last part of the gospel summary statement is this that we are sinners who've been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will. And last part is this trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. That we know this life is not all there is. And so that if you look around and you say, you know what? All these people have so much more than me, and I have no prospects of ever having that vacation home or a nicer car that works or whatever it might be that your heart longs for. It's okay. It's okay. This life is not all there is. And you need to know this that you are heirs of a vast fortune. Didn't know that, did you? You're heirs of a vast fortune. Again, I have no idea what he's talking about here because I've never been to heaven and I don't know and I know it says no ear has heard, no eye has seen and no mind can conceive what he's got prepared for those who love him. But I do trust that whatever it is, that nothing in this world could ever compare to it. And so why give yourselves for this, the things of this world and the possessions of this world and run after those things when he has got so much more in store. Romans 8, 16 to 17, Paul writes this, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, nothing that you could ever give up this side of heaven will ever compare to what is in front of you I mean, if God spoke to you and said, I need you to give up your car to someone who is in need, trust that it's not going to compare to whatever is coming your way, whatever he has in store for you, anything that he calls you to give up. It's not really giving it up. It's just investing it in his kingdom. I know that takes great faith. I know it takes faith. But this is why we're talking about the implications of the gospel. That when you were his enemy, God gave his son to die for you. And now that you are his beloved son or daughter, trust that he cares for you. That he will provide for you. That as you are generous with what he's entrusted to you, he will be generous with you. He will care for your needs. The last implication I want to say is this. That we live our lives for real wealth. This has certainly been part of the theme of the whole sermon. But there are things that are more valuable than gold. There are things that are worth more than a big house and a beautiful car. Matthew thirteen forty four to 46 The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had. And bought it. It says that is what God's kingdom is like. It's worth selling everything for, it's worth giving up everything for. Nothing compares to Him, to knowing Him. There are things that are more valuable than gold. What you need more than anything is not to hit the lottery, not to marry someone who has a ton of money not to inherit a great sum of money from some relative. What your heart needs more than anything else is to be freed from the anxiety that money produces. To know that he's got you. He loves you. You belong to him. You're a citizen of the kingdom. You have a heavenly father who loves you. He will not let you go hungry. You are safe and secure with him. He's got great wealth stored in heaven that is yours. Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus says this. Listen, let your heart listen to this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. And tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself each day, has enough trouble of its own. Many of you are familiar with those verses, but I'm hoping you're hearing them in a new way today as we talk about this. Do not worry. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says. You concern yourself with being about your father's business, and he will take care of your needs. That's real wealth. Real wealth is not hitting the lottery, real wealth is your salvation. It's your adoption as a son or daughter. That's what gives you security. You belong to a heavenly father who knows what you need and will care for you and provide for you. Real wealth is being saved from the troubles of this world and knowing that you have a vast fortune ahead of you. Whatever that may mean, that you are heirs of all that is his. It cannot be taken away from you. And so Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Take this to heart. You are heirs of a vast fortune. Do not live your lives for the things of this world. It is very hard, I know. We live in a world of advertising, right? We live in a world of marketing. We live in a world where everyone is trying to convince you that you need the greatest and the newest and the best, that you are not okay the way you are, that you should not be content with what you have, but you need more. And Jesus and the Bible and the gospel speak completely counter to that. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trust your heavenly father that he cares for you. Amen.